In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. On this, the Sunday between Ascension and Pentecost, we're invited to look at the comings and goings of the persons of the Trinity. As those persons crisscross the lines that separate earth from heaven and earth from hell. We're invited not to look at this three-storied universe too literally, not to imagine that hell is somewhere at the center of the earth and heaven is somewhere up in the sky. But our modern cosmology should not draw us to avoid looking at the crossings from those places nonetheless in one way or another. And we have tended to do that. Ascension suffers especially compared to the attention given in the church to Holy Week, the death, the crucifixion, mourned on Good Friday, the rebirth, the resurrection celebrated on Easter Day. Yet the one little weekday we managed to dedicate to Christ's going up to heaven has its exact counterpart in something that's happened earlier. Holy Saturday, that day of complete liturgical silence, marking Christ's going down to hell and releasing the souls in prison. Do we believe he does that? Well, it says he does it in 1 Peter 3. And more to the point, we have two articles, two out of 39, running concurrently to highlight just the importance of those two events which are linked, the going down to hell and the going up to heaven. And I quote Article 3, very short, don't panic, of the going down of Christ into hell. As Christ died for us and was buried, so also is it to be believed that he went down to hell. Cranmer originally added another couple of sentences in 1553, and I quote, for the body lay in the sepulcher until the resurrection, but his ghost, his spirit departing from him, was with the ghosts, the spirits that were in prison or in hell, and did preach to the same as the place of St. Peter doth testify. Then in Article 4, we jump from hell to heaven. Article 4, of the resurrection of Christ. Christ did truly rise again from death and took again his body with flesh, bones, and all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature, wherewith he ascended into heaven and there sitteth until he returned to judge all men at the last day. Heaven and hell then, giving death and resurrection a cosmic resonance. Before going up and out of sight to glory, Jesus goes down to another place unseen and covered. Now, the articles were written evidently to emphasize the truth of the resurrection and the reality of our Lord's humanity in the face of the primitive and subsequent denials. Not much has changed. One of the most perennial heresies is docetism. This is the idea that Jesus really was never entirely human. If he was in the body, he didn't really suffer in the body. He got through life on earth somehow floating about an inch and a half above the ground if you look beneath his radiantly white garments. And some taught, even at the time of the Reformation, that the flesh of our Lord had not been real flesh. 
The article reaffirms that Jesus took on full humanity in the incarnation, and he took it with him at the ascension. We've got to go back, actually, to all of these crisscrossings. We start, actually, not with the incarnation, which happens, by the way, in March at the Annunciation, not at Christmas, if you like, when we celebrate it. We work our way again through the events on earth of Holy Week. We go to the Ascension, and then we end with not just the return, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, but the return of Christ, body and bones and all, at the second coming, at which point we all gather on this earth. Our story doesn't end in heaven, that's just a hotel, a slumbering place. Our story ends when we are gathered again on the redeemed earth and the redeemed heaven. So the sermons in Acts, which we hear each year at this time, make much reference to the ascension. The Bible is full of references to the ascension. And not just as a fact of history, it is further expected to function as a force in the life of the first Christians. Just as the post-resurrection appearances allow the disciples to accommodate themselves to this intermingling of humanity and divinity and Jesus, which had avoided, uh, evaded them all the time of his earthly ministry, in which they really imagined him as something much less than the second person of the Trinity, so their reaction to the rather spectacular events of his departure also show a marked departure from their previous reaction to other supernatural manifestations. As one biblical commentator notes, they now, at the ascension, demonstrate an altered consciousness, a whole new way of looking at things than they have ever shown before. Let's look at some similar events that they've seen, like the transfiguration, for instance. Behold, a bright cloud, they have this in common, overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud spoke, said, this is my beloved son, with whom I well pleased, listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They'd seen none of it because they were so terrified by the appearance of all these supernatural happenings. The cloud, of course, the ubiquitous sign of God's presence always arouses fear. The empty tomb has a similar effect in Luke. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them. We get them today too in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. In Mark, the reaction is the same, alarm and an averted gaze. In Luke, even the guards have their gaze averted. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They completely passed out. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. We get this at the Annunciation, to do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Now, a long preamble. How do the disciples react? at the ascension, not to an apparent absence, but to the very real presence of the Lord traveling heavenward like some rocket, flesh, bones, and all. And I quote, 
And as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. They were falling on their faces on the ground in fear. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, you know, why are you so afraid? No, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Why are you standing there gawking as if this were just what you were expecting? Nothing to hear, see here, they say. Move along. Their comment not, he is not here, but rather, he'll be back. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We're looking ahead to the second coming. He will come back, and Jesus has said as much too to them in those beautiful long prayers, those farewell discourses in John. He'll come back and take them to himself, and where he has gone, they too will follow. What this all adds up to, the disciples' altered consciousness and the angels' altered message, is to indicate a oneness now a fundamental consonance, an identity that has brought about in these last weeks of Jesus' ministry on earth in the post-resurrection appearances. The fear is gone. There is a trust now, a oneness between Jesus and his disciples. No more fear, no more doubt, no more frustration, no more grief, although there is a twinge of sadness now at his parting. But not for long. There is work to do, getting the word out. And so it is for us. Where they go, we follow. They follow Jesus, we follow them, and just as Jesus goes through death, totally destroying death as he does so, so too the disciples must die in order to taste the next phase of life. This is the other thing about today's readings. There's all this talk about glory now, and there's also more talk about suffering than we've ever heard. For some reason in the church, we have the very secular idea that God's glory and our suffering cannot coexist. A doctrine that we call health and wealth, for lack of anything better, has led us to believe that if we're one with Jesus, our life will be just one walk on the beach. You won't find this in scripture, but it has found itself into our heart. And even when scripture tries to free us from it, it has a bit of an uphill struggle. And yet Jesus, is saying, you too must die. In order to be free of the suffering that is ahead, as Peter says, and in order to go through to the next phase of life. The resurrection then is not only a fact, it is a force. The force that is strong enough to draw us through suffering to glory. Griffith Thomas writes, Christ's ascension was the culmination of his earthly life and work, not the resurrection. The ascension is the climax of his life and work and gave purpose and reason to all the rest. Everything else hangs on the ascension. While the removal of the guilt of sin was associated with his death and the destruction of the power of sin with his resurrection, 
the removal of the separation caused by sin and the wages of sin, which are death, was associated with his ascension. Christ's righteousness has only now been accepted. His position is only now assured, and only now is access truly possible to all believers. Only now does the whole thing click into position. Christ's removal from direct local personal ministry is now offset also by the promised gift of the Spirit, no less personal but all the more powerful for being mediated, indirect, and interpersonal, not limited anymore by time, space, or ubiquity. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Greater works greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. This is how it fits. Greater works than these we will do. In the meantime, as we wait for our Lord's coming, empowered by the Spirit, what's going on? Our Lord is not just sitting in session, if you like, but making intercession, sympathizing, succoring, and saving the sinful, as Griffith says, giving the Holy Spirit, governing and guiding the church until he shall appear again. In the meantime, he leaves hell a smoldering ruin, the grave gutted, and death demolished. It can still and will take a bite out of all of us on the way through but his sting is gone. I say this very mindful of the events of the last week in London and in Egypt, which have put sudden violent death into the forefront of our awareness once again. The letter from 1 Peter that we've heard has suggested to us that as Christians, violent death should never be far from our expectations. I didn't write it. That's what the text says. And as the texts of Scripture leave us with the stark reality that this is to be expected again and again, death is a fact of life. Our mortality is defined by death, by life being delimited, delimited in time. And it is the only way for those on the way from the sufferings we experience now to the glory that awaits us. Death is not last, it does not last, and it does not have the last word. But death is a given. Its hold is broken just as a sin for which death is the wage is forgiven. As Bishop Callistos Ware puts it, the Son of God suffered unto death, not that we might be exempt from suffering, but that our suffering might be like his. Read it again. Not that we might be exempt from suffering, but that our suffering might be like his. His suffering was pretty intense. Christ offers us not a way round suffering, but a way through it. Not substitution, but saving companionship. Whether we like that or not, where we sit right now, this is what God has on offer. This is God's best for us. And I can promise each and every one of you 
that the time will come in all our lives when God's best looks not just pretty good, but the one thing that we can really hang on to when every other good has simply been burned away. This is not to say that we look forward to the experience of death, not that we go looking for the cross that God bids us carry around. Luther tells us very clearly, don't go looking for your cross. Your cross will come looking for you. But remember that to everything that we suffer now, there is something to look forward to beyond it on the other side. The gray rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back, and he beheld white shores and beyond them a far green country <clears throat> under a swift sunrise, as Tolkien writes. As we're bringing this plane in for a landing, we aren't to be stressed that the crosswinds and the headwinds shake it almost apart. As my friend Jim Fosdick says, God promises that the plane will land, not necessarily in one piece, but we will survive unscathed. Finally this, Christ has not abandoned us so that he may now enjoy the delights of his heavenly home as he waits to come back and join us. But nor is Christ pleading anything on our behalf making some kind of perpetual sacrifice to a reluctant and world-weary father. His presence, his is intercession. He is not bent over some altar or sat on some mercy seat trying to secure our salvation from an angry God, but as an enthroned priest king asking what he will from a father who always hears and grants his request. Our Lord's life in heaven is his prayer. As Jesus says to his disciples, where I go, you will go also. And that is into the Father's presence where we will be welcomed with open arms and the word, well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus' work is done. Our work continues. But wherever his spirit leads us, our access to the Father is guaranteed. Amen.